I'm Jill Rowe. In this episode, Steve Chalk and I talk about why we all long for certainty, only to discover that uncertainty and the ground shifting is where the answers are found. What might we do when we experience a dark night of the soul and how might we make sense of some of the tough stuff that happens to all of us? Doubt and the importance of asking questions are at the heart of this thought-provoking and hopefully helpful conversation. So Steve, um, I thought it would be good for us to talk about doubt because that's like a really sexy subject mm. isn't it it is um, <laughs> doubt doubt the dark night the, of the soul. dark 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 night of the soul when i uh, john of the cross oh yeah yeah he said that the dark night of the soul it's uh, <laughs> like some freaky ghost story um when i was i think i was 18 so i was in the in the middle of doing or coming to the end of doing my a levels and I, so I'd grown up in the in in the Anglican Church. I I had quite a kind of generous faith towards all sorts of people. You know, I wasn't I didn't grow up in a kind of it was a broad church that I grew up in. And my uh, faith, I think, had been uh, my sense of belief about who God was and what life was like was quite neatly packaged. Mm. which I think is quite normal when you're a teenager. You have that. It's like mm. normal, isn't it? And then uh, when I was in the middle of my A-levels, I was doing religious studies. Just to be clear, I did quite well at it. So <laughs> hence why I went on to become a uh, religious studies teacher. But one of the subjects I was studying, we did quite a lot of study, uh, was in Buddhism. Mm. Yeah. And so here I was, this... Uh, follower of Jesus and suddenly I was encountering not just people of other faith which is just fascinating and interesting but also I was studying it and I felt kind of the ground start to shift from this rather neatly packaged certainty that I had (laughs) into oh my word I've got so many questions and this feels like someone has just pulled the rug from under me and I don't know where I am. (laughs) And I think that was my first ever experience of losing certainty and living with uncertainty, which gets called doubt, I think. So uh, do you, does that ever... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when I I went to um, theological college, uh, as I did, they told me that the first year of being at theological college would destroy your faith and the other years would rebuild it in a, in a different way. And, I, and actually, that was true. It really was true. And, but what I'd add now is that through life, that kept happening. It wasn't just that once. So I remember going to... Um, in the uh, um, Oh, boy. Uh, when Oasis was just a few years old, I went to India... My, I'm half Indian. My dad was Indian. Yeah. But I'd never been to India. And my dad, growing up, had always told me that India was wonderful. Um, he, he, yeah. So it was a funny thing as, as kids, you know, if anything ever broke, you know, a kettle broke or you know, a cup smashed, he'd pick out the bits and he'd look at the bottom and go, oh, it says made in England. <laughs> Honestly, he'd also made in England. Oh, if yeah. only it was made in India. And he put it back down, you know. And so I believe... He was believed, proud. Yeah, he was and proud. I believe that 
India was this country when nothing ever broke or went wrong. I believed it was like the Garden of Eden. He was born in Madras, which is yeah. called Chennai now. And so after a few years of running Oasis, I was asked to go and do some youth work, uh, well, do some lectures around youth work for the YMCA, actually. So I went out to India, and I arrive in India, and I'm like totally <laughs> devastated. There was... There was poverty everywhere. People, you know, sleeping on the streets, intense, huge slums, no sanitation, but very little education. I mean, that's one side of India. The other side is huge wealth and all the rest of it. But that, And then I went to where he was born. And, and it, from his stories, I even knew the school that he'd gone to. It was called Dufton Corrie. And I went to Dufton Corrie School. And he was like, ah, this is a... Thinking slum, it really was. It's improved over the last few years again, actually. And I was blown away by this. But what I was really blown away was, oh, actually, I went for three and a half weeks to India, you know, three and a half weeks. And I went before there were mobile phones in India. And I had to stay there for three and a half weeks and couldn't come home. And I saw all this poverty and I was crushed and I almost lost my faith again. Because reality challenged the way that I was thinking and it filled my... How could God be good? How could God be anywhere watching this? I remember sitting in a little hut in a slum and I watched a child die. She was 10 days old, I think. And I watched this child die in her mother's arms. Um, she was dehydrated for lack of clean water. I watched that child mm. die. If I'd been there for a few days, I think I would have walked away, not only from India, but away from my faith almost altogether, because it's nothing I'd been taught actually about suffering or need or God's love or anything stacked up against what I was actually experiencing. But I had to stay for these three and a half weeks, which dragged on and on and on. But in that time, I began to find some answers. And I also began to see the beauty in India beyond the grief and the pain. So it was my doubts that actually were part of my faith and made me stronger in mm. the end. So I suppose I learned then, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Doubt is an element, a dimension of faith. Live with your doubts, explore your doubts, because in that doubting, you'll find truth. As someone said, you know, Jesus said, the truth will set you free. Yeah. He didn't say, but it won't hurt on the way. Yeah. So question, you had arrived in India, say in this example, you'd arrived in India and your head and your heart contained a set of beliefs that mm. you'd been told about what God was like. So mm. God is loving. And there were probably some other mm. things mm. that were being like, well, in the end you escape this anyway. Mm. So, yeah. you, you know. The evacuation God is love plan of God. And any, 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 any um, suffering, there's a purpose for. God is working his purposes out. You know? yeah. This person died because it was their time, because the Lord took them. Yeah. You know, and all that kind of, And I'm watching this kid die, and he's not the Lord. It's not God's time, and there's nothing good about this. Watching this mother break down in tears, a whole world is ended. Yeah. She lives in filth. She has nothing. Where's God in that? So lots of... Lots of us, some people, choose to, like you said before, choose to not connect with that pain mm. because God, the God they know doesn't fit. Mm. The God that they've come to describe mm. 
doesn't fit that experience. Mm. So then you just shut it down, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. There's a famous story, of course. That I, is it? I'm always telling you a story, aren't I? Steve, no you are the story man. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a famous... 27 years I've had of your stories. <laughs> no, sick to death of them. <laughs> but there's a famous novel called Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. And um, again, a book not to tackle lightly. <laughs> but um, it's a classic work, of course. And in the middle, there's a chapter which is called The Grand Inquisitor. And in fact... It's often, well, not often, it's sometimes published as a book on its own. And it's a story that these brothers, uh, through this huge, giant epic of a novel, are working out lots of life's questions. And in this particular chapter, one of the brothers tells another one um, about a dream that he's had the night before. And in his dream, he's taken to the city of Seville, and it's in the middle of the Inquisition as um, the church is forcing people into belief because it's good for their soul. And so in his dream, he walks the streets of Seville in the middle of all this, and then he sees Jesus. And he says, Jesus is walking the street, but then the people recognise that it's Jesus. And the Grand Inquisitor, the Cardinal in charge of the Inquisition, putting people on the rack, torturing them into faith and belief for their own good, spots Jesus and has him arrested. It's all a dream. And Jesus appears before the Grand Inquisitor. And the Grand Inquisitor says, why are you here? And Jesus says, nothing. And the Grand Inquisitor says, why are you here? Last time you were here, you caused so much trouble. And Jesus still says nothing. And the Grand Inquisitor starts trying to, um, trying to excuse what's going on. And he says, you know, it's all your fault. We have to torture these people into belief. We have to torture them. And Jesus still says nothing. And the Grand Inquisitor says, if you had made it easier, then we wouldn't have to torture them into belief. Their heads are so filled with doubt. And Jesus still says nothing. And the Inquisitor says, you never realised, Jesus, it was your big mistake. You didn't realise that ordinary people can't bear doubt. They can't deal with doubt. They need certainty. When you were on that cross, hanging there, why didn't you call on the legion of a thousand angels to get you down? Why didn't you seek revenge? You could have done anything you wanted. When you were in that desert, why didn't you turn the stone into bread? Why didn't you dive off the the tower of the temple and save yourself? Because if you'd have done any of those things, it would have been easy to believe. You left people with doubt and you never knew that ordinary people can't bear doubt. Then he ordered Jesus to be crucified again. And the thing is, it's a remarkable story, isn't it? Because it's so true. Mm. People want certainty. They don't want reality. And so people, I think, have tried to turn the whole of life into certainties, black and whites, uh, cast iron certainty. And it's interesting that churches that preach certainties thrive. doesn't matter what the certainty is. You know, if it's black and white and it's rules bound, it's okay. The trouble is that's an immature, juvenile faith. And in the end, people leave those kind of churches because life's got bigger questions that they're not allowed to ask. 
I heard somebody say once, and I think it's true of me in the end, he said, in the end, he's, he talked about choosing to leave church. He said, in the end, I left church because I'd rather live with questions I couldn't answer than in a community where I wasn't allowed to ask. Yeah. So why, Steve, do you think that people need certainty? Why is it that we do have that longing for things to be solid? That's a really good question, and I'm not sure I can answer it for anyone other than myself. But certainty brings security. Yeah. I like people who see the world the way I see it. I like to be in familiar settings. It brings comfort to me. Being in new settings with new people, with new thoughts, is unsettling and it's disturbing. It's also very exciting when you do it, isn't it? Well, that's what, yeah, I mean, yeah. it is, isn't it? It's yeah. like a, but, but the tiredness sometimes means I want to settle. I want to stop. Yeah. It's hard to push yourself out sometimes. When you do, you always grow through it. It's always wonderful. It's like when you're at some kind of gathering party or whatever, you see someone you don't know across the room and there's a bit of you that says, ah, I'll just stay here. And there's the other bit of you that says, I'll go explore a conversation with them. And you go explore the conversation. You always learn. You always grow. You, you, always, you always come away. I always come away thinking, boy, I learned that and I learned this and I learned that yeah so so it's a security thing it's isn't a, security it? a security thing comfort it's yeah um, I, I like to know where i am i like ritual i um around me yeah um and and as many times as you push yourself out of it there's still the temptation to um to retract isn't there there's yeah. still the temptation to to go back inside of your shell the yeah. whole time. And it's it's fascinating, I think, that doubt is treated in a particular way by church or f mm. people of faith mm. in that, that it's, it's viewed as a very negative thing, isn't it? So yeah. if I was to stand up and say, yeah, I'm not sure I get, I'm not sure I'm mm. on this right mm. now, that yeah. like, like I know with you, mm. that would be absolutely fine. Mm. But for some people... Mm. That would be, oh, Jill's mm. lost the plot. Or... Yeah, and, they, and, and that's challenging to others because it's challenging to them and their sense of certainty and their sense of security. So, so doubt is discomfort, isn't it? Uh, is, is that the best yeah. way of saying it? Yeah. It's discomfort, and we don't like discomfort. That's why we stick inside our shell, stay inside our corner, stay inside those neatly built walls that, w that we have. I, I remember being challenged years ago by something I read, and I've tried to remember this. I try to remember this all the time, actually. It's become a principle I try to live by. Someone was talking, uh, somebody wrote, what, I think it was in a book I read, um, it's just a line or two, but they talked about Jesus in the desert. I just referred to Jesus in the, in the desert, that famous story that comes at the beginning of the Gospels, when knowing who he is and what his mission is, he goes away into the desert and he stays there for 40 days. He lingers there and there he's tempted into all sorts of well, they're, they're questions rather than temptations, aren't they? 
how do I fulfill my mission this way through using power, prestige, status, quick way? No, 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 I won't do that. So though we call it the temptations, it's really 40 days in a wilderness working through how he's going to fulfill his mission and be who he's intended to be. It's tough. But he stays in the desert. And um, I realized just through reading these few sentences that I didn't like staying in deserts very much. I like to hurry out of deserts. Now, I've never been in a physical desert, except for half an hour driving through it. But I often find myself in an emotional desert, a place where it's all going wrong, or I feel it's all going wrong. Um, And I feel lonely, isolated, discomfort. I feel challenged. And there's something about me that wants to hurry out of the desert. And the way we hurry out of deserts is we put some music on, you know, put something on with a beat, a bit of rhythm, switch on the TV, you know, start some entertainment going, have a drink, do whatever. Make a call, yeah, yeah. Look at social media, whatever. We rush out of the desert. We hurry out of the desert. And I've learned that there's wisdom in lingering in the desert, wrestling with this thing instead of pushing it away and trying to forget it. Um, So that's a great bit of advice from me to me. And over the years since, subsequently, I've tried to, in that place of doubt and depression and anxiety or stress, instead of trying to push it all away with noise and activity, I've tried to linger there and ask myself the question, what is this teaching me about my, myself and others and my responses? What can I learn in this place? Yeah. I know it will pass, but don't despise it. Yeah, yeah. And for some people, it kind of never passes, does it? So for some people, mm. the desert becomes how Life it is. is. It just is that way. And so I, I'm, I'm with you. I think disruption... I talk it in the work I do in Oasis. I talk about the role of disruption in our own transformation mm. around our character and all the rest mm. of it. But but for for some people, in terms of their their beliefs around who they are in relation to whoever God Sense is, it just and what they yeah, do, it, it just exactly. it's like a yeah. life. And I'm thinking, you know, Mother Teresa just giant leap there to Mother Teresa. Oh, I know why she, you made the leap because that yeah. was her story. That was her it? story, wasn't it? Like. 30 years, Mm. wasn't it? 30 30 years or more, more, she doubted. Mm. I mean, that's like, we hold her up. Many people have held her up as this, uh, and she she was just this incredible, you know, saint. But for a while, that was sat on because she had these diaries of doubt that she'd written. Mm. And that that, was deemed how does how how do we make that work you know because that seems to be against we're inspiring people to have belief and certainty and and here's this saint who actually for 30 40 whatever years lived in what like like that phrase we used at the beginning the dark night the soul was her that was Mm. her journey Mm. yeah and it's it's worth ex- exploring that story about her a little bit more. In actual fact, those uh, what you're talking about is contained in a book 
that's put together about a decade after her death. It's right. called Come Be My Light. Okay. Yeah, Come Be My Light. And um, uh, uh, it was written by her order. Uh, well, written. It's a compilation of letters, I think 40 letters that she wrote and over the course of about 40 years. And they were put together after her death. And her story is... A story is this. In fact, I've written about this in the book that I've just written, which is called The Lost Message of Paul, because I just think it's such a powerful story. So she was Albanian, as you know, and at the age of 16, 17, she went to India to work in Calcutta, and she lived in a school. It was run by a group of nuns, and she became a teaching assistant and then a teacher in that school. And she lived there for many years. But at the age of 36, see, 20 or so years later, she went on a retreat. She had a sabbatical. And they sent her across India to the Himalayas. On, uh, um, and uh, so on the train, on the way to the Himalayas, she heard, she says, the voice of God. And the voice of God said to her, come be my light in Calcutta with the dying on the streets. I want you to leave the security of your teaching job in the convent school and I want you to go to the streets and I want you to work with the very least of the very least. So hearing that voice, at the end of her sabbatical, she goes back to her order and she pleads with her bishop and she says, I want to be released from my job in the school because I, I clearly, God said, come be my light, so I've got to go do it. Well, it took two years because no one believed her, but eventually they gave her permission. So she left her teaching job and she went to live on the streets. She went to live with these people. But then she wrote to a good friend within three weeks of arriving and she said, this is wonderful, this is great. At last I am doing what Christ has called me to do. I'm on the streets, I feel such joy, such passion, I am doing what I want. But about a month later she wrote to another friend and she said, when I came to the streets it was because... I felt God's hand in this, but God's deserted me. He's left me. Where is God? I don't feel him anymore. Well, to cut a long story short, and it is a long story because it takes 40 years, she writes a succession of letters over 40 years, and each one of them to her best friends is, God's left me. He's nowhere. I have no faith. I feel barren. She revives her faith, her sense of faith, in the 1960s for about three weeks. A new pope is declared and she goes to Rome for mass, the new pope. And she writes to a friend saying, it's back! And then she writes to someone else about three weeks later saying, it's gone! And the truth is, there's a really poignant letter where she writes, now she's famous and she's won the Nobel Peace Prize, etc., etc. And she writes to a friend and she says, this smile I wear is a mask. I wear this smile and I have all the right words for all these people, but inside I feel nothing, absolutely nothing. And the point is that this doubt, this emptiness, never left her until, until her death. So after her death, her order tried to have these letters. They discovered them all. They tried to burn them because they thought it was terrible. <laughs> and the Vatican insisted they were kept. Wow. Um, and so eventually they were published. And I talk about it in my, uh, my book, I tell that story. Um, and you can read the book, can be my life. You can yeah. buy it on Amazon or wherever. But 
the extraordinary thing is the Vatican said we should keep these letters because these are letters of the real faith of a woman. These are about faith or faithfulness. In my book, I say that um, 30 something years ago, I can't remember how many years ago it was, I should remember, I got married to Cornelia, my wife, and I remember standing in the front of this church, which is in West Norwood in London, saying, you know, I, Stephen John Chalk, to take thee, you, Cornelia, Martha Reeves, that was her name, to be my lawful wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health. I can remember all the words because the same so often, I'm a vicar, you know, until death parts us. And I rattled it off, she rattled it off, and we were married. And I have learned subsequently that faithfulness is a hard thing. And I say in my book, actually, there's sometimes where being faithful is really easy, you know, the joy and the happiness of it all, it's a breeze. But there have been many other times, when life's worked for us, but there have been many times when life's worked against us, and actually we've worked against us probably, when being faithful to that promise has been really, really, really difficult and you're just left hanging on though you feel nothing. And what the story of Teresa teaches us is that's what faithfulness actually is. It's hanging on to a story despite the doubts and the struggles and the temptations and the fears and saying, I'm committed to a story and I will not let go of it. It's not about, ooh, I feel gooey and wonderful and fuzzy all day. Faith isn't an unswerving commitment to something that you never doubt. Faithfulness is hanging on and never letting go. Mm. And sometimes what we do is, because we don't like that feeling of, and not feeling it, mm. we drug our way out of it, don't we? So we, we, you know, as long as I get that, when I sing songs or mm. when I do this or I don't, mm. like you say, we, we mask our way out yeah. of it so we don't have to live the experience yeah, we've of all, striving. Yeah, we've it. all got our drugs and sometimes it's um, our music and sometimes the telly and sometimes yeah. it's, it's, it's one of those things that we'd we'd see as a drug and sometimes it's a form of church that's what i was going to say like you know it could be the music we have in church like because this makes me feel when i sing these things it makes me feel a kick a particular way you know all those little hormones and chemicals are running around or and that's that thing of it we're we're pushing away Mm. the not knowing and what you're saying and is this this is how it is this is the reality of living life and mm. trying to follow jesus and it's with our fingernails sometimes yeah just hanging on and yeah i <laughs> that reminds me i often think i sometimes say to people jesus said take this bread and break it and remember me you'll find me in the bread we're not so sure of that we'd prefer to find jesus in the band yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We want the PA system and the lights and the rhythm and a great tune to, uh, yeah. you know. Uh, it's uh, in the broken. Yeah, so it becomes a kick and it becomes, yeah, it becomes the latest trick, doesn't yeah. it? Um, and that's massive, isn't it, to, in today's, like, the the, the talk now, that the, you just the, the coverage there is about being honest about mm. how you're feeling, being mm. honest about mm. some of the brokenness you carry, the mental mm. health issues mm. that people have and all the rest of it. Mm. And so maybe, 
maybe what we should be focusing our attention on is ensuring that we are people who provide a safe space yes for those who are in their desert yes you know that that's because what most we do. of us are in a desert for most of our lives exactly. one way or the other we struggle we all struggle i often look out at um um our church congregation and i you know i know which you describe Most, as a zoo sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Well, because it, we are a zoo, aren't we? We're at different places, and uh, and I think I even said the other Sunday I looked out at people and I said, I know you. I know lots of people I don't know, but that many many people I know, and I know I'm looking at people and I know their. I actually know their struggle. I know their their pain. I know their story. So this is where we all are, and the lie of life is that. Everybody else is fine. fine. They're making it, but it's only me that's struggling. It's only my marriage that has ups and downs, or my life, or my relationships, or my job, or my, you know. I, we're all constantly struggling with all of this stuff. So, as you say, it's to create a space where a community where I'm known yeah. and embraced and I'm loved for who I am. I always think that. Um, well, actually, whilst you were talking, I was thinking, I was thinking uh, not so long ago, I went to a party, birthday party for someone. I was talking to this guy there who um, recognised me and he told me he was a Christian and he went to this church and he said, oh, my church is... I went to another church, he said, but now I go to this church. We swapped. And I said, oh, why is that? He said, well, do you know... It's just the band. He actually said that. It's, it's great music. He said, you know, I, you know, you got to get some decent music. To be honest, it's the band. The band's great. And I thought, there's a man who would have either lost his faith completely within a few years or given up. Because the truth is, in the end, you get bored with the band, however good it is. <laughs> you just do it. It's just a piece of entertainment, isn't it? Unless you're there for community, friendship, to stand with one another, to weep with one another, to embrace one another, to rejoice with one another, to support one another, regardless of, not, of whether there's a band, it, it's not going to last long. Mm. There's this uh, phrase, I think it's, this is probably a good place to finish, but um, it's Ram Das, I think he says, um, or it's Father Gregory Boyle, who knows which one of those <laughs> it is, but that this phrase of what we're doing is we're we're just walking each other home that's what we're doing in our doubt in our certainties in our joy in our crazy and whatever it is we're all just walking each other home together that's what we're doing that's what we're called to do i you said we should um stop but just to prolong it therefore um so um uh being a leader of a church, well, I'm part of a church, really, sometimes people will say, you know, to me, I don't want to come to that. I'm not sure I get much out of it. You know, they say that often. Consumption. It's not my thing. Yeah, I won't get much out of it. And sometimes when I'm in a more honest mood, you get be careful who you say this to. He says, saying it to anybody who's listening. I sometimes say to people, do you know, if I only went to things <laughs> that I'd get something out of, I wouldn't go to many things, to be honest. You know. Except, of course, when you go to the thing you think you're going to get nothing out of, you get huge amounts of 
out of because of the person you sit next to, because of the person you talk to, because of the story you hear, because of the smile you share, because of the drink you have together, because of the joke you tell together, just being with people. So I've learned over the years that even the thing, oh, I'll get nothing out of that because I already know about that or whatever, actually being there is the thing that you really get the riches out of. Yeah, that's brilliant. Doubt, uncertainty. It's a great journey in together. Yeah. Thank you, Steve.